Hello, and welcome to Can't Unread, the podcast about the texts and ideas that change us. I'm Rosie Pasqualini, and today we're talking about Flannery O'Connor's iconically soul-destroying short story, A Good Man is Hard to Find. Before we get started, I'd like to mention that some of our future episodes will feature guests. If you'd like to join me in discussing a jarring article or piece of short fiction, go to cantunread.com and click on the link at the top. I'd love to work with you. Okay, let's get started. When I was 15 years old, even more pretentious than I am now, and trying to argue with my English teacher that creative writing classes had little value, my teacher, who was pretty badass, rattled off a gigantic list of names of important authors that I had not read and that are often read in creative writing classes. Flannery O'Connor was the first on the list. The message essentially was, If you haven't studied this person, you don't know what a good story is. In the majority of English classes and writing classes that I did end up taking, we've read Flannery O'Connor. Specifically, a good man is hard to find. And I guess that my teacher was onto something, because there are few things that wreck my soul as consistently as this story, besides maybe watching my cat repeatedly try and fail to open a fully closed door with her paws in her head. The message here is, good art can destroy you. I don't want to love the things that everyone loves, because that's too mainstream. But a good man is hard to find always makes me experience this incredible clot of dread and sadness combined with a slight hint of cynical amusement. And this is what I think most people feel when they read this story. Here's what I think makes a good man is hard to find so special. There is a point at which something is gut-wrenching enough that you stop processing its meaning. And this is why we use art to deal with difficult subjects, because it's by nature removed from these subjects. In my view, symbolism and even what we call romanticization are often ways to, among other things, create distance from a subject in order to engage with it in a way that actually promotes understanding. I think the weird magic of A Good Man is Hard to Find is that it stays right beneath that critical point of dread where you stop processing the other meanings of the text and are just transfixed in this sort of emotional horrorscape. And I'd like to talk a bit about how O'Connor accomplishes this. But first, you may be wondering, what actually happens in this story? Quick note. All the readings we do on this show will be available at cantunread.com several days before the next episode, and I recommend that you read along. That way you can gather your thoughts beforehand and see how your interpretation compares to mine. More perspectives equals more things to think about. Aww yeah. Anyway, this story is probably set in the 40s or 50s in Georgia, and it's about a family going on vacation to Florida in the summertime. Florida is a terrible place to go in the summertime, but that's okay. The characters are middle-classish and white. There is an unnamed grandmother, her adult son, Bailey, his equally unnamed wife, whose face is, quote, as broad and innocent as a cabbage, and their children, John Wesley, June Starr, and a baby. They all get together in their nondescript car, 
the grandma brings her cat because she's afraid that he'll miss her too much, and they head out on a wholesome family road trip. Except nobody really wants to be there. The husband is silently seething with, quote, his jaw as rigid as a horseshoe. The kids are fighting, and the grandma is, in semi-stereotypical boomer fashion, endlessly reminiscing about the good old days when people were supposedly, you know, good. Except she's technically not a boomer because this is set in the 40s, so the children are actually the boomers. The grandmother, who'd rather be visiting some, quote, connections in East Tennessee, tried to convince her son before they left not to go by reading him a newspaper article. In the opening paragraph, she says, quote, Here this fellow that calls himself the misfit is a loose from the federal pen and headed toward Florida, and you read here what it says he did to these people. Just you read it. I wouldn't take my children in any direction with a criminal like that a loose in it. I couldn't answer to my conscience if I did. This didn't convince Bailey not to take his family, though. Because what are the odds that they're gonna run into this one random person? Ha ha ha, foreshadowing. In the car, the kids are having an iconic kid-like fight. These kids are basically what the people on the subreddit r slash child free think children are like all the time. Here's a description on page three of the two older kids and the grandmother sitting in the back of the car together. When the children finished all the comic books they had brought, they opened the lunch and ate it. The grandmother ate a peanut butter sandwich and an olive, and would not let the children throw the box and the paper napkins out the window. When there was nothing else to do, they played a game by choosing a cloud, and making the other two guess what shape it suggested. John Wesley took one the shape of a cow, and June Star guessed a cow, and John Wesley said no, an automobile, and June Star said he didn't play fair, and they began to slap each other over the grandmother. Ah yes, the joys of childhood. Honestly, the most striking thing to me about this passage, which is completely unrelated to O'Connor's actual writing style, is that this, like, nine-year-old kid defaults to automobile instead of car. Like, that used to be a thing. That is eloquent as hell. John Wesley's like, no, an automobile. Then, after the grandmother tells a factually questionable personal anecdote that I would describe as casually racist, the family stops at a barbecue place. It's run by a man named Red Sammy Butts, and yes, that is spelled B-U-T-T-S. He owns a gray monkey that's chained to a tree, which feels too symboly to be a real symbol and probably means nothing. Which is another way for me to say that I don't know what it means. They play the Tennessee waltz and the grandmother pretends she's dancing in her chair. June Star tap dances and is then incredibly rude to Red Sam's wife for no reason. And the grandmother talks to Red Sam about the good old days. After they've left, the grandmother remembers something. There's an old house around here that she wants to visit. An old house on an old plantation. How quaint. This is from page five. Quote, She said the house had six white columns across the front, and that there was an avenue of oaks leading up to it, and two little wooden trellis arbors on either side in front, where you sat down with your suitor after a stroll in the garden. She wants to know if those arbors are still standing. So what does she do? Naturally, 
She makes up a story lying to the children about how there's a secret panel inside of the house where the family hid all their silver when, quote, Sherman came through. The children get very excited and convince Bailey, the reluctant patriarch of the automobile, to take them there. As they drive toward this old house, the grandmother has the sudden and very uncomfortable realization that the house is actually in Tennessee and not Georgia, and they are headed to no destination whatsoever. Shocked by this, she leaps up and jostles the cat in the basket. The cat jumps onto Bailey, and the car ends up rolling over. O'Connor becomes more and more merciless in her portrayal of children, because shortly after the car has settled, John Wesley and June Starr are both extremely excited to have been in an accident. Also, Bailey throws the cat out the window at a nearby tree. You might be thinking, yeah, this is pretty awful. And relatively speaking, you're totally wrong. For this is merely the dread appetizer. The real fun begins when the family encounters, quote, a big black battered hearse-like automobile. That is four adjectives with no commas and reminds me of one of those theater warm-up chants. Out of this big black battered hearse-like automobile, thanks to the grandmother's frantic waving, come three men. One's older than the others, and he has a scholarly yet wild look about him. He's kind of old, but kind of not. He's wearing silver-rimmed spectacles, tight pants, and no shirt. And he has, quote, a long creased face. Sounds pretty hot to me, though I don't think that's what O'Connor was going for. His opening line is, good afternoon. I see you've had a little spill. Oh, and also the three men have guns. There's plenty of foreshadowing at this point, though since it's so close to the horrible events of the story, I guess it's just plain old shadowing. On page 8, O'Connor writes, Behind them, the line of woods gaped like a dark open mouth. And, of course, the grandmother recognizes the older man as the misfit. Here's what happens next. The family is taken into the woods in little groups by the misfit's cronies and shot. While the misfit and the grandmother talk about life and Jesus, and the grandmother desperately tries to convince the misfit that he is a good man. Finally, the grandmother says, Why, you're one of my babies. You're one of my own children. And reaches out and touches his shoulder. And the misfit shoots her, shortly thereafter delivering the line. She would have been a good woman if it had been somebody there to shoot her every day of her life. Oof. What is it exactly that makes this ending so famously devastating? I think one part of it is how O'Connor juxtaposes what we might call neutral human behaviors with this massive amount of carnage. Now, this isn't exactly a unique phenomenon, right? The trope is that pretty much every good villain needs some glimpses of humanity to round them out. But O'Connor does this exceptionally well. When the cronies are going to shoot Bailey, they're described as helping him up like he's an old man. More evisceratingly, when June Starr, the daughter, is being taken out to be shot, she says, I don't want to hold hands with him. He reminds me of a pig. O'Connor writes, The fat boy blushed and laughed and caught her by the arm and pulled her off into the woods after Hiram and her mother. The interesting thing to me about these sorts of actions is that they're not really glimpses of goodness. It's not the same as a sociopath having a soft spot for a puppy. 
helping Bailey up, the boy blushing and laughing. These things aren't inherently good, they're just strikingly human. They're morally untagged but recognizable behavioral details that make it impossible to forget that these people are just people. I like to think of Flannery O'Connor as a bit of a reverse Carson McCullers, an author that she patently did not like. In The Heart is a Lonely Hunter, which is one of my favorite books, McCullers, like O'Connor, has an eye for these little human things that we do that are often lost in the heuristics that we use to describe ourselves and others. When McCullers puts all of these little human details together, she creates a view of people that ever so slightly tends toward righteousness. It's hard to tell as you're reading because each detail individually has so little moral weight that it could go either way. Your inflection when you say hello, or whether or not you double knot your shoelaces, or how you handle the presence of a cockroach on your living room floor. These are not binary markers of moral righteousness or lack thereof, but they can add up over time depending on how you frame them. And what Carson McCullers does is, despite the horrible things that happen in her works, seemingly insignificant human quirks somehow add up to neutralize them. And you're left with the impression that people are at least a little more good than they are bad. That we're all somehow a slight but still statistically significant net positive in this world. Maybe not as individuals, but as a species at least. And I think Flannery O'Connor uses the same strategy as Carson McCullers to accomplish the exact opposite goal. Since her stories tend toward people being trash, the neutral behaviors, the human quirks, are just profoundly depressing. It's easy to think of the grandmother in this story as being exclusively this closed-minded, mean and bigoted person, and she certainly is all those things. But, well, she wants to see the arbors. She's keeping track of the number of miles they've traveled in their car. These are neutral details, but they're humanizing. They seem like they could be precursors to goodness, and you're hoping they'll add up in that way, but they just don't. You keep waiting for these people's idiosyncrasies to come together into some hole you can get behind to demonstrate that a good man actually isn't hard to find. And of course, the irony here is that even though the grandmother is wrong about so many things, in O'Connor's view, at least I would assume, she is right about the title. Which should not surprise us, as O'Connor liked to, quote, scare the boys to death with her irony, as she was described as doing in one of her writing classes. Anyway, the humanizing details are important, but I actually don't think that those are what specifically give this story its magic. In the devilish last third of the story, we get what I would describe as a theme overload, or almost an info dump. It's a pretty long dialogue about Jesus, punctuated by sweeping statements on the nature of life, etc. The Misfits got this little monologue on page 11 where he says, Jesus shone everything off balance. It was the same case with him as with me, except he hadn't committed any crime and they could prove I committed one because they had the papers on me. Of course, they never shown me my papers. That's why I signed myself now. I said long ago, you get you a signature and sign everything you do and keep a copy of it. Then you'll know what you done and you can hold up the crime to the punishment and see do they match and in the end you'll have something to prove you ain't been treated right. Then he delivers this totally edgy line where he's like, 
I call myself the misfit because I can't make what all I done wrong fit all I gone through in punishment. And not to minimize this fake person's experiences, but given the fact that he literally kills people for sport and says that cruelty is the only pleasure in life, I don't know if he's right about this. What's interesting about this section is how performative it feels. It doesn't have that same subtle humanity as the rest of the story. It kind of feels like you're watching a movie that thinks it's too cool. And this is where the magic happens. This performative, thematic conversation where you know that some of the most important meanings of the text are being dropped is totally overshadowed by the fact that the main characters of this story are being killed in the background. The deeper meanings of this story are superseded by the visceral reality of life being shit. But not just that, the sheer shock of what's going on. The prejudgment horror of people being killed. And this goes back to what I said at the beginning about how there's a critical point of dread where you stop processing additional meaning. A good man is hard to find plays with that point of dread in a capacity that personally I've not seen in any other piece of media. One of the larger themes of this piece, I think, is whether or not pain gives you a more accurate perception of the world. And the way that the last third of this story is written explicitly forces this question upon you, the reader, by juxtaposing the prima facie horror of death with this supposedly profound, theme-heavy conversation. Some people characterize the misfit as being this kind of anti-hero, prophet, meta-savior person, and I think that's completely wrong. He's just as bad as the grandmother, if not worse. And although this is a bit of an oversimplification, I think we might posit that the grandmother's ignorance comes from her not having had enough pain and enough experience, while the misfit's ignorance comes from him having had too much pain. In any case, I think the larger question is whether the misfit is somehow more enlightened than the grandmother because of his pain. And he's clearly not. They're two sides of the same proverbial coin. And that weird relationship between pain and meaning or lack thereof is exemplified by the reader's own experience of those last few pages. You know that the themes are really kicking in at this point, and in fact, I think it's a little heavy-handed. But the horror of the predicament keeps mounting and mounting, so you struggle to pay attention to the themes of the story as they are being laid out right in front of you. This, to me, is the genius of this story. It questions the value of emotion in storytelling and meaning-making. It questions the value of its own medium, while ironically being an incredible use of that medium. And that relationship between pain and meaning is something that I think about a lot in relation to my own life. I used to believe that pain by nature teaches you something ineffably real, something you can't get from quote-unquote ordinary experience. And yet I've found that my own pain is not well integrated into my self-concept, but rather that my self-concept is coherent in spite of it. This isn't to say that we don't learn from pain at all, but I think that A Good Man is Hard to Find exemplifies that difficult relationship between pain and meaning-making. Does the agony of the people being killed in the background really complement the themes of the story? 
I'd like to say yes, but this is truly ironic considering the fact that it's hard to pay attention to the themes as they're being laid out for you when people are being killed in the background. I'd like to close with a two-star Amazon review of this story and the others in its collection. The review is titled, A Good Mind is Easy to Lose. The review is as follows. Flannery was a writer of great purity, a purity that imbued her stories with elements of pure revulsion. Like Conrad, she peered overlong into the heart of darkness. Obviously, a depraved mind, twisted into a Gordian knot of irreparable convolutions. Let her stories serve as a warning to the curious. I find it funny that this is a technically a highly critical review, considering the many layers of depravity, relationship of thematic depravity with actual visceral people being shot depravity, are what make this story really great. Anyway, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this. Next week, we'll be reading something quite different. A piece about cognitive scientist John Searle's Chinese Room Thought Experiment. We'll be discussing this influential work, its academic value, and the controversy behind it, asking if readings should be banned because of the wrongdoings of their authors. Join us next time.